Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Wei Yi Li to talk about her new book, Women in Trauma and Late Imperial Chinese Literature. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2014. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Wei Yi Li to talk about her new book, Women in Trauma and Late Imperial Chinese Literature. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2014. Now, this is a book that is one to get, to get your hands on, to read, to purchase, and to keep with you for many, many years to come. It's it's not only a study and an interpretation of the interplay and the co-creation of political trauma, the Ming-Qing transition, and women and women's writing and the relationships thereof in a, a range of different source materials that come out of the 17th century and beyond. But it's also, I think, an extended rumination on the nature of and the, the ways that we think about and produce time and space and categories of people from literary fragments and from an archive. It's also an archive in and of itself in that throughout the text in ways that you won't necessarily hear um, in the interview to come, but you should know is in the book, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of um, translations, including the original text of the kinds of documents that Wei is working with. And so it's an archive in and of itself of primary source texts um, that you'll want to read and then keep it, keep on going back to. So this is a monumental book. Um, it's a long book, but it's the kind of book that you'll have, again, um, for the rest of your time as a reader on this planet if um, you get a copy and you'll make use of for that amount of time. It's a really amazing um, contribution, and it's a really amazing accomplishment as well. So over the course of our conversation, you'll hear us talk about not only the chapters of the book, um, so the chapters of the book that take on women's writing, writing about women, writing in a woman's voice, the figure of the woman as it emerges in different textual contexts. You'll also hear us talking, especially toward the later part of the interview, about the kinds of sources that Wei used, um, her choices in using those sources, and you'll hear us talk at various moments, and, and here I'll, I talk a little bit more than usual um, in this interview in part because I was really excited about what was happening, but um, you'll hear us talk a little bit about as well the ways that she is engaging and asking us to re-engage and rethink the relationships between and the categories of history and literature. So this is a book that works uh, at a level that's well beyond 
as well the histories of and with women and their voices and uh, the tropes of gender in the Ming Qing transition. So uh, that's all I have to say. I hope you enjoy. I really enjoyed reading the book. I really enjoyed talking with Wei Yi about it. And I'm so grateful to you for listening. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. And I hope you have a good time reading it as well. I'm here today to talk with Wei Yi Li about her new book, Women in Trauma and Late Imperial Chinese Literature. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Wei Yi. Thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today. And thank you for writing an amazing book. I'm really, really looking forward to this. Thank you. Thank you. So the book that we're here to talk about explores writing around the Ming-Qing transition in 17th century China, and it pays special attention to the relationships between history and literature in various kinds of writing. And these include writing by women, writing about women, writing in a feminine voice, and writing that's engaged significantly with issues surrounding women and the feminine. So Wei, can you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this topic? Where does this particular book fit within your larger research trajectory, and, and how did you get here? Well, I started being interested in the Mingqing transition, and um, about 15 years ago, I was involved in a conference um, on the literature of the 17th century, and that's when I started reading extensively about it. And um, so interesting topics accumulated over the years, and in the last few years, I would say around um, 2008 to 2009, I came to the conclusion that um, the idea of women would be a good way to bring together several things that have been inter- that have been interesting to me, including writings by women in this period, uh, women who women as a trope in various kinds of writings, including fiction, drama, and poetry. And um, so, I would say that the starting point is a general interest in the seventeenth century, and then gradually, without perhaps even noticing how it happened, I realized that so much of it can can be um, built around this topic that I decided to focus on it. So it's an amazing book, um, and for lots of reasons, and one of the many, many reasons to um, not just read the book, but buy a copy, have a copy, and have it at hand, is that it, it's also an archive of some pretty amazing translations of primary sources. And so we'll get to some of that um, in the moments to come, I'm sure, but this is just to say this is it's a massive book, it's a monumental book, and it's a book that's meant to be loved and kept for a very long time, I think. And so it's an amazing achievement. So as a historian, one of the things for me, that really fascinates me about the book is that you're really taking on um, very explicitly the relationship between history and literature. And so one of the thematic threads um, throughout the book is looking at how history and literature intersect. And specifically, and this is um, just to kind of use some of the words of the book, how conceptions of gender mediate the experience and expression of political disorder. Okay. So we've got expressions of gender on one hand, but first we have this relationship between history and literature. Can you talk a little bit about, for you, what's important about the kind of work that you're doing in this book with that relationship between history and literature? And how does the way that you're putting them into dialogue here maybe importantly differ from how a lot of other works do? 
Well, I think there is a bunch of scholarship that um, f- focuses a lot on the question of historical reference. Mm-hmm. Um, they try to um, draw specific conclusions on what are the topical references in uh, literary writings, what, what are these writers actually talking about. And I'm interested in that too, but Perhaps more interesting for me is the question of how, if you have a certain historical event, um, especially a traumatic event, how the emotions surrounding that have to be worked out through literature, how writing about it actually is a way to address uh, certain experiences in history, and how the writings themselves then become both... um, an object of historical research and also in some ways even affect the course of history because the, the way people think about certain things um, then become a tangible event once, once, um, once these feelings are put into words. So, you know, it's a bit hard for me to um, put it succinctly how, how I think about this relationship, I would just say that it, it is um, actually a very fluid relationship that, go both, that goes both ways. And um, um, I think of it as um, also as a, as a way to, to enjoy these materials, you know, because to me it's also a question of being able to imagine myself back in that time and being able to think about these as real existential choices and um, and that writings mattered in that sense that this this was how people dealt with all these painful things in life. Um, I don't know whether that answered the question. Oh yeah, no, that's great. Thank you. I mean, it's it's really refreshing for me in part because a lot of times when we write and read works that put literature into dialogue with history history is treated as this kind of unproblematically as this kind of context, right? As what happened that helps us read um, the literary products. But here there's a much more organic kind of co-creation that's happening in a way that I think doesn't just problematize, but really opens up both of those conceptual realms of history writing and literature writing. Um, And so I think it's, it's a really productive contribution to that general conversation as well as being a contribution to how we understand gender and women's voices and voicing of and by women in this period. So the first chapter, after we move um, from the introduction, looks at male poets who use feminine diction to convey political meanings that are developed during this Ming-Ching transition. And there's a major theme running through this chapter of the book. This is um, what you call the confluence of political disorder and a poetics of indirectness. So a poetics of indirectness. It's really, really interesting here, and we'll talk um, perhaps a little bit about that. Now, one of the really interesting examples um, that you open with in this chapter of the book is the example of a man, Wu Jiaotian, who writes under a feminine name, and this is the name Liu Susu. And you talk about um, sort of his writing, his decision to do this, why he would do this. Can you maybe um, take us into this part of the book by talking a little bit about um, Wu Jiaotian, this guy? Why is he choosing to write um, under a feminine name? And what's going on here that'll help us understand your larger arguments in this part of the book? 
you know, actually, I was quite worried about that part of the book because for a long time I, I wasn't sure about the anecdote, the the anecdote, the anecdote that he wrote um, in a woman's name um, on the on the walls in this temple at Huqiu in Suzhou, because the anecdote itself came late, but there are surrounding contextual materials that eventually convinced me that this actually did happen, but. Perhaps we have to backtrack a little bit. So the story of this um, uh, poet is, is that he um, he was about twelve when the Ming Dynasty fell, and he he was a very precocious poet, and even then wrote um, some very political poems about this about about the fall of the Ming. Um, but eventually, he did feel enough. Um, he, he did feel um, reconciled enough with with Qing Wu to. Um, participate in the civil service examination, um, but he was uh, he was later involved in the Soko examination scandal of I believe 1657. Now I don't remember for sure the date. Um, the the context of that scandal was that uh, there there were um, allegations of um, corruption um, and uh, in the in the setting of examination topics, and as a result, there were huge purges, and um, a lot of people were involved in that. And he was um, also involved, and he was exiled to Ningguta. So um, this was someone who people believed to have had um, a a kind of um, lingering loyalist feelings towards the Ming, but who was also very much part of the Qing regime in in the sense that he he, um, at least was willing to participate in it. And, um, but when, um, when he suffered this uh, misfortune of being exiled, he, um, well, actually, the Liu Susu event took place before um, took place before that. The, the story was that he um, um, maybe for a lark, we don't know, wrote under the name of this woman Liu Susu on the on the walls in the temple in Suzhou, and um, the the poems is about is written in the voice of a woman who. Um, who, who who is abducted by some Qing soldiers, and who now um, used the opportunity of being in Suzhou to um, uh, write about her experiences and to seek sympathetic responses from the, the literati in Suzhou. Mm-hmm. So these are twenty quatrains written in the voice of the women. But very soon after, it it transpired that he was the one who um, who actually. Wrote them, but for a while, people did. According to a later source, people did not know that it was the case. And then, um, um, a lot of scholars and poets did write in response to this Liu Susu. Um, the the interesting thing about Wu Jiaotian is that later on, as I said, he was exiled and he suffered this reversal of fortune. And on his way to um, on on his way of being exiled, he again wrote some poems on a wall under the. Uh, under a woman's name Wang Qianyang, so um, you know there's a kind of ironic um, uh, echo there. Um, so when when he wrote under Liu Susu, it was it was so one one reading is that he he did that to express some sort of disaffection towards the Qing, but that couldn't be the case because that was before he took the examination. So 
for me, the the interesting question then is why why would he do that? What what does he hope to achieve with with this set of portraits? And um, is it to express a kind of ambivalence about the Qing regime, or is it because he feels that um, the the emotions of a woman caught in that situation mm-hmm. would be very would would be would be um, a, a a good, um, almost a good symbol for the, for the for the feelings of the literati at that time, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the really interesting things, just as you're talking, um, that comes out of this part of the book is the kind of inscription that he's producing, right? Poems written on walls. Now, there's one of the great things about the book as a whole, and we may um, get a chance to talk about this a little bit later on, are the the range of sources that you're bringing to bear in this study. And it's, it's quite wide and in a really wonderful way. But the idea of inscriptions by women written on walls, and specifically women who were um, abducted, perhaps, this is a theme that recurs. It's a theme um, that we see again in Chapter 5, which focuses in part on these kinds of inscriptions. Can you talk a little bit about that, about this phenomenon of women, especially abducted women, writing on walls. What is significant for us to know about that, um, for us to understand the kind of work that that's doing in the book? Well, first of all, everybody wrote on walls, so it's not just women. This so-called TV is is a very um, common phenomenon. Judith Seidlin also wrote on this um, in her book on materiality. So for me, the this idea of poems on walls written by abducted women, it, it the reason why it's so captured the imagination of the literati, I think, is the idea of um, being able to be a historical agent, even as you're victimized by it. Um, the idea that you um, um, you suffered, and yet by writing about it, you almost it, you almost rectify your your own fate i mean sometimes of course it's a very practical question of hoping that you will be ransomed and um um making your story known maybe to someone from from your hometown and so on but a lot of times it's um it's it's just a way of uh, giving voice to your experience and and therefore somehow um, as I said, rectifying that victimhood, not rectifying that victimhood, but, but somehow um, asserting your, your agency despite your lack of it. And this idea of being able to be a historical agent, even while suffering, is, is very appealing to people at that time. So uh, one question that often comes up in talking about these poems is that a lot of people question the authenticity, whether it's actually written by these women or maybe people just make up these stories and so on. And we'll never know. I, I suppose, you know, we'll just never know. I, I, I suspect in some cases we, we, these, these are authentic and then there, there are also enough cases of other people um, um, making such things up. But in a sense, even if they are um, they are not authentic, the phenomenon is still just as interesting. Why why fake them? Why why is this story so? Um, why did this kind of story so engage the imagination of the literati? And so much so that very often you have a poem uh, written on the wall, and then you have a lot of uh, response poems on the walls uh, next to it, and. 
in some ways it be- becomes a kind of a discursive space where you can make all kinds of arguments on what what is such a victim to do, what is her proper choice, what is an acceptable choice, should she compromise, should she resist, should she die, and so on. Um, and the, 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 in some ways, sometimes the judgments of the original poem are just as interesting as, as the poems themselves. And of course, they elicit a lot of responses, not necessarily on wars, but in people's uh, collective writings. That's right. And actually, the sort of formate this building up of responses and um, is related to another theme that you talk about later on in this chapter, which is the forging of literary communities. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's also a way to, to move from the individual writer to looking at the ways that the kind of literary production coming out of this Ming-Ching transition, whether it be on walls or the engagement of writing that may or may not have been on walls, or whether it be in poetry by, for example, early Qing poets like Wang Shizhen, um, it is our ways of forming kinds of community around experiences of political disorder and trauma and the kind of inscriptions that come out of it. So this is a theme that we see recurring, but it's also something that we pay special attention to um, in this chapter of the book. So I wanted to just mark that for listeners who are particularly interested in the forming of literary communities around literary inscriptions in this period. Um, and also the sort of your recent or your um, comments just a moment ago about whether or not these inscriptions on walls um, actually happened, whether they're authentic, really uh, not worrying about that so much, I think, is part of the larger spirit of the playing with history and literature as part of the same world of tropes and world of uh, literary production um, that the book does so well, right? And in a way, it doesn't matter whether... It, you know, these inscriptions were actually produced by the people who are named in association with them because it, the whole book is asking us to question on some level this way of thinking about literary production as being rooted in a what actually happened. Rather, you know, we're thinking about history as coming out of and in, in part being experienced through literary production. Okay. So there's obviously a lot of really fascinating stuff happening in this part of the book, but there are also lots of other chapters to get to. So I want to move us to some of them now. Um, So after a a sort of extended discussion in this first chapter that includes, for example, um, a whole section that looks at songs about willow catkins, right? And this is a a theme that's often associated with separation, with helplessness, with the end of spring, with dispersal. And you talk here also about the problem of um, kind of decoding potential political resonances in these poems. And sometimes it comes down to merely just looking at the dates that they were produced rather than trying to piece out um, clues in the content for trying to figure out whether there are political resonances. Um, So after all of this, we come to a second chapter. And this is a chapter that looks at female voices that are appropriating masculine diction. So this is kind of the inverse or the obverse of the first chapter. Now, in this chapter, you explore the ways that early Qing women writers challenged gender boundaries, in a way started a new tradition, and the ways in which they were using the space of the Ming-Qing crisis to work out heroic aspirations, political engagements, and historical understandings, as you put it in this part of the book. Now, one of the really fascinating case studies in this chapter is a case study of 
a writer named Liu Shu. Now, Liu Shu, um, as you put it here, probably left the most extensive corpus by a woman recording her heroic aspirations um, and the ultimate failure to fulfill these aspirations that we have. And there's a lot of fascinating things happening in her corpus of work. So um, with all that said, I'm going to turn it over to you. Can you talk a little bit about um, what's happening in the work of Liu Shu and how could you maybe use this to open up some of the larger themes of sort of heroic um, figures and heroic aspirations in this literature? Well, Liu Shu is one case that I really, really worried about because the um, the we we don't have 17th century manuscripts of this. We we have only late 19th century um, claims of recovering this manuscript, and the and the ones that we actually have in in physical form is early 20th century. So uh, for for a while, I wasn't even sure I should include her, you know, because I, I wasn't sure about the the um, the provenance of the text, but then I decided that if someone w w w was going to forge something, it shouldn't look like this, because there, there are just too many particularities about things that don't fit into an ideological agenda. If you have to forge something with a purpose in mind, if you want to create um, Ying Shou, you know, a, a female hero, it, it shouldn't have all these nitty-gritty quotidian things in, in it too. So uh, with all that said, I I still am not totally sure it's from the 17th century, but let's say even if it's, it were a 19th century forgery, it would it would it would be um very interesting. It would say something very interesting about um the 19th century imagination of the the, the female hero too. But if I were to take the whole chapter in in um more general contours, I would say that what, what I find really interesting is that this is um, a moment in the history of women's writings in Chinese literature when you already have a tradition of women's writings by then, meaning the tradition is, in a sense, ripe enough to turn on itself, meaning a lot of the traits that are accepted as um, quote-unquote feminine, it, there is enough of a history of that now for poets to go against that if they want to find a new voice. And somehow the political disorder of that period provide the, the, a really fertile um, soil for, for doing that. And so this comes out in different ways. Part of it, one, one, one way is for, for them to comment explicitly about uh, historical events. In a few cases, in the case of Liu Shu, she actually seemed to have try to be involved in some sort of military effort to reverse the tide, but it didn't go very far. And so um, a lot of the writings is about her own uh, a sense of frustration and failure. In fact, frustration and failure goes through all the way. So even uh, in um, better known, with better-known authors like Wang Duanshu or Li Yin or, or Liu Shi, for that matter, well, Liu Shi is a difficult case because we don't have more than a few poems after the fall of the Ming, but her writings in late Ming to some of them are, were already very political. But um, um, so these are women who, so for a very few of them, it's a sense of being able to participate in this um, historical process in some way, perhaps even to be involved in some way. That's very, those cases are very, very few. So for, the rest of them who 
try to um, write about contemporary history, it it is with a great sense of hopelessness and futility. Maybe in that sense, not really different from their male counterparts. Uh, um, but in in their cases, it's in the case of these women poets, this sense of futility is sometimes tied to a sense of uh, their gender awareness, what what it means to be a woman, and and why that makes you even more helpless. So. What seems interesting to me then is how, as a result of all these writings, there is a new, um, uh, um, a new sense of self-consciousness about the meaning of writing from the in the, in the works from women poets in these periods. Another very interesting theme I find is the way they write about friendship, friendship between women and friendship between men and women. If you think about it, there are not many poems on friendship between men and women because the the ones we have on the relationship between men and women tend to be love poems but because these are political poems and if you don't want to uh, sound like someone's lover you have to address that man as, as an equal and you have to almost write like a man in order to convey the sense of common purpose. So I find all those subtle changes um, very interesting. Quite aside from, uh, I think on the on the on the most basic level, it's just the merits of these poems. Quite aside from their ideological agenda, I just find so many of them so amazing. And that also goes for Liu Shu's corpus, which may or may not be genuine. I just cannot be hundred percent sure. Um, and a lot of those poems are so. So amazing! I just want to have a chance to um, introduce them to, to readers who may not be familiar with them. Are there any that are particular favorites that you want to sort of point out, especially for listeners? Um, I I like Liu Shu's poem about the lotus. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't recite it now. But, oh no, no, no! Uh, yeah, great. But that's great. We'll, we'll pay. Um, I'll. This way we can mark that as listeners and go back and read, read that and pay special attention to it. Um, yeah, I, I also like um, some of Zhou Chong's quatrains. Yeah, I, I like a lot of them. Yeah. Oh, also Gu Zhenli, of course. I, I like Gu Zhenli's poems. Um, yeah. So there's a lot of really beautiful translations and really beautiful uh, material that is explored in this part of the book and a lot of really beautiful poems. But as we move from this chapter to the next chapter, we actually move from poems to another genre, and this is prosymmetric fiction. So the next uh, chapter, chapter three, also looks at heroism. It looks at um, representations of real or imagined heroes, but it does it from the perspective of a different kind of body of work. So this chapter looks at the trope of heroic transformation in different kinds of writing across and around the Ming-Qing transition. And you look in particular at the figure of the female knight errant, among other things. So one of the really fascinating sources that you look at in this part of the book is this um, prosymmetric fiction called Heaven Rains Down Flowers, right? It's this amazing story about a daughter and her father, and it's just crazy and beautiful and fantastic. So could you maybe take us into um, it? Yes, I'm being very specific here, but it's just fantastic. It's fabulous. So could you maybe open up um, what you take to be some of the most important themes happening in this chapter by introducing us to that work? Um, What's happening in Heaven Rains Down Flowers and what's important for us to understand about that, to understand the larger arguments that you're making in this part of the book? 
So um, this is um, Tian Yuhua. Um, uh, um, this uh, prosometric fiction is a tansi from the the dates given in the in the text is um, uh, is um, is a mid seventeenth century date. I suspect it's an eighteenth century text. Uh, the story is about this um, almost perfect man. Perfect, that is, aside from his uh, tyrannical, sometimes tyrannical attitudes toward his family. Uh, so this is a perfect scholar official to Wei Ming, and this, this is the story of, uh, this is supposed to be the story of, um, his, um, the, um, his various adventures, his struggle with the corrupt forces in the late Ming court. And so on, but the real hero is really his daughter Zhuo Yijun, and um, and um, so she being, I mean, as as a daughter in this very restrictive household, she really doesn't um, have much to do with the outside world at all, except for the moment when uh, the corrupt forces in um, in the main court um, abducted her at some point and. And um, and that is her moment of intervention in late Ming in late Ming politics. All this is fictional, by the way. And um, um, so she has a chance to to uh, bring about the death of one of the villains uh, who who is um, supposed supposed he is supposed to be the the brother of one of these evil consorts of um, of of the of the Wanli Emperor. So. But the, the the story is really not so much interested in that. The story is really interested in the relationship between the father and the daughter, and how, on the one hand, the daughter is um, the true inheritor of the father's great uh, great merits and um, talents, and at the same time, she is also rebelling against him, and um, somehow the 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 choice of the, the fall of the Ming as the background to this story, the, the, the decline and fall of the Ming as the background of the story is um, is connected to this father-daughter relationship. Um, so, as I said, the fact that um, um, that she can rebel against him is 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 explained by the um, by her personal struggle with this um, with, with these corrupt elements in the main court. So she has to step outside the family in order to do that. So this allows her to go against what she what the father imposes on her. Um, but and then there are various plot details on how because of all this political um, because of the political decline that is happening at the time um, that um it it affects the family in in various ways and uh in in order to um um help the family has to always go against her father so in in a sense the the political the the, the function of the political disorder here is to facilitate and legitimate the daughter's rebellion no um, I, I should just add that at this point, the Tian Yuhua um, is also um, dealt with in Hu Xiaozhen's work, and she gives a really excellent discussion of this too. In um, in um, I, I think there's a chapter of this in English in the book edited by David Wong um, called uh, "Cultural Innovation and Dynastic 
<laughs> collapse or something. So there is a chapter there too. So you should readers interested should look should look at that. And um, um, but for me, what you know, again, this is one of those questions of uh, dating that that literary scholars can get very obsessed about. So. Um, in, the, the, whether whether this mid seventeenth century date is authentic um, may may determine whether you want to put this uh, whole text as part of the discussion at all in a sense because so much of um, the materials I discuss uh, from the mid late seventeenth century although I I didn't really stay within that time frame but um, in in one in one sense you can say that. To include Tian Yuhuang will dis- and to acknowledge that it is an 18th century work may, may disrupt the um, temporal framework a little bit. But I feel that this is so unusual, and also I I am pretty sure this is written by a woman, and for women to to write about generational conflict and about what it means to turn against patriarchal authority, and feeling that she needs a whole dynasty to collapse in order to in order to articulate that rebellion, I thought that case is interesting enough to merit inclusion into that chapter. Because the rest of the chapter, as I recall, most of it is mid-late 17th century materials. But again, I mean, I think there's it's totally justified if we think about the Ming-Qing transition, right, in the 17th century, in a way that's similar to the way the book at least in my experience of it as one leader, right? And that's all I can really um, go by. But the way the book asks us to consider the category of woman or women. So in the book, um, in general, you know, you're not talking just about writers who were women. You're, in a way, the book looks at the category of woman and womanhood and femininity as it's emergent out of an archive that includes um, you know, speaking in the voice of, pretending to be, um, wrestling over what it means to be um, a woman, feminine, etc. So it's really an emergent and very multiple kind of um, object, and in the same way that the Ming-Qing transition or the 17th century is. So if we, I think if we think of it that way, it doesn't so much matter whether this work was actually written you know, in the middle of the 17th century or in the 18th century in order to have, to integrate it into the kind of story about literary and historical production in concert um, that the book is really telling on some level. So, so yeah, so I think this is just me advocating for, hey, I think it's great, and it's, it actually makes a lot well, of I think, sense. Well, I think you're too kind, yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, but I think, I mean, it's not about kindness, but so much, as much as it's about just, you know, the conceptual frame of the book, I think, and if we... Um, I think if we adopt the conceptual frame of the book, it doesn't, it's not, whether or not this text is actually written in the midst of the Mingqing transition is kind of beside the point, right? And and a lot of the chapters, I'll mention for listeners who may not know this otherwise, a lot of the chapters have a final um, kind of section that brings the events of the bulk of the chapter, so that may be, you know, around the Mingqing transition, forward into the future and looks at the later resonances of some of these figures and some of these problems. So um, the previous chapter did that by looking at the ways um, that many of the phenomena around women and heroism culminate in the figure of Chojun, right? This chapter as well looks at the ways that many of these female heroes um, in chapter three were reclaimed in some way by later Qing and Republican writers. So this is, again, just to say that I think um, time 
the categories of temporality and the categories of gender in this book are usefully problematized in a way that's not something that I think um, we need to apologize for, but rather that make up the heart of one of the major contributions of the book. So I think we need to hold this up and you know shine a light on it and, um, <laughs> and celebrate it rather than um, apologizing for it. So that's, but that's what I have to say. <laughs> Let's get back to what you have to say. Um, so after this chapter on heroic transformations, that also looks at, um, it, you know, in addition to looking at this fabulous uh, that you just talked about. Um, it looks at the female hero more generally as a figure that traversed boundaries, boundaries of history and fiction, of human and ghost, of sort of threatening the new order or accepting the new order. We come to a chapter that looks at writings about concubines and courtesans who displayed strength and courage and resolve. So there's lots of really wonderful things happening in this chapter. And among the many things, you look at the writings of three important literati who turned the women that they loved into symbols. And these were symbols of valor, as you put it, of resolution and of political integrity. And so their objects of desire become heroes. So um, we have here an example of the concubine as a martial ghost, as a poet historian, and as a hidden loyalist. So is there, of these three examples of Wang Sun and Zhou Liangong, of Bian Sai and Wu Weiye, and of Liu Ruxi and Qian Qianyi, is there one in particular that um, you particularly like that you'd like to talk about as a way of opening up what's happening in this chapter? Um, it's hard to choose between your children, right? <laughs> Right. Hard to choose the, among your children. So, I mean, I like all of them, but maybe I should choose the simplest case in a sense because um, uh, also be, because it's a bit less discussed is Zhou Liangong and this concubine Wang Sun. Fabulous. Um, it's um, also a ghost, and who doesn't love ghosts? Right, right, right. right. So this is uh, Zhou Liangong was one of the most famous figures from from this period as a as a writer as um as a as a letter writer as a, a, an as an anthologist of various kinds of writings also he's connected to a lot of people he's also an art connoisseur a man of many talents and abilities um and so the this, this is a very short section of that chapter. Also, it's the shortest of all three. That's why I thought maybe it's easier to talk about. Um, um, so in the, the story was that um, in 1642, he, when he was the main official, he was defending um, this Wei Cheng in um, Shandong. And when it was being besieged by, by Qing troops and... Um, during this very grueling siege, by his side was his concubine Wang Sun, who really, um, whom he, whom he presented as a, a very heroic figure. Um, after, after the fall of the Ming, Zhou Liangong, um, eventually served as a Qing official. Um, and this set of poems, um, were, were written in the 1650s when he was, um, um, uh, some sort of in charge of naval affairs in um, in the Lower Yangtze area, and um, he, I think, it's sixteen fifty two. I don't have the book with me, but I, I, I think it was around sixteen fifty two. The, the, um, he, he prefaced. He wrote this set of eight poems, um, which he 
explain in the preface how he came to write these poems. Is in in the preface to these poems, he first of all explained who is this concubine who she came from a, a modest family, but she's literate. She's also a, she was also a poet. Although she didn't want her um, poems to to be handed down, but she was a poet, and um, uh, she ex- he explains that her ghost comes to her, her ghost or some or her spirit comes to visit him in a dream in um, in um, in sixteen forty two in sixteen fifty two, and in in the dream um, she he she seems to totally sympathize. Um, with uh, her present, with his present circumstances as a Qing official, but she also evokes all these memories of what a heroic um, defender of the Ming he was um, in 1642. So, in a sense, writing about her is a way for a way for him to um, to pass on to posterity what happened in 1642, because all those poems were excised from his collection and. Talking about this, um, the, the ghost of the concubine coming to visit uh, visit him in, in um, 1652 and, and using these poems to remember uh, the heroic endeavor together is one, is one way for him to make sure that that part of his personal history is not forgotten. Um, so, oh, I, I omitted a very important detail. This is such I'm such a bad storyteller. She she died in 1646. Of course, she died after right shortly after the Ming. and um, so this was a few years after her her death. And he says that you know her ghost never comes to visit me, but eventually she did, and then showed all this lingering love and regard, and and um, and so he writes these poems to commemorate her and. Um, so as far as the structure of the book is concerned, I feel that chapter three is about the uh, the the broad historical retrospection, how to use various images of heroic women to recapture that historical experience. Um, especially, you know, that whole idea of historical transformation, women who are not heroic to begin with, but who are made into heroes. And the literary work, make sure you understand how this is a... a um, a very fluid process of making someone into hero. So, but that the, the the background of that is the big historical picture. Whereas this chapter with Zhou Lan Gong and the rest is really about personal memories, about traces and fragments that these men seize on, usually with a woman at the center of it, and um and then in retelling this the stories about these beloved women who are also heroic women, it is um also a way for these men to look back at their personal choices. In the case of Zhou Langong, is this is someone who um, has has served has, who served two dynasties who in, in the context of the time was was a dis- dishonorable decision and how in a sense he apologized for it, he justified it, he um, expressed re- regret for it and he did all through writing about this woman. So I find the complexity of that interesting. That's that's why I went on and on, and then you know uh, use Wei Ye as a, as a longer example, and longest of all in in Chen Qingyi's case, um, which we probably should, shouldn't go into because that's just too long. 
<laughs> well, it's it's fabulous though. So I so I do want to move us to the the um, rest of the chapters, but but it's um it's at the end of this chapter. So the Chen Cheni example, I'll just mark for listeners. This happens at the at the sort of last ish part, um, the penultimate section of chapter four, and you can definitely look at that, and it's a really fascinating. Okay, so after chapter four, we come to a chapter that looks at some fabulous, fabulous women and people who are writing about them. And these are women who became um, what the book calls chastity martyrs. They committed suicide to escape rape or were killed defying the enemy. Many of them were on the run. Um, They were writing these poems on walls. And this is a chapter that really takes up the theme that we were talking about much earlier in our conversation. And this is the theme of the question of the agency of a victim. So these figures here, these women who are running away or running toward, um, they were sort of the, the chapter considers the ways in which being on the road for them, even if it was being on the road against their will, might have been a kind of freedom. Um, it looks at some of the ways that some of these women fell in love or assumed new identities in these cases. It looks at the question of suicide. It looks more generally at the way that the agency of these victims was, became an object and became a, a sort of fraught space in this literature in some really, really fascinating case studies. So I won't ask you to talk about them, but I just want to kind of mark this for listeners. Um, there are some really fabulous examples here, including poems attributed to um, abducted women, um, women who were taken north. Um, there's just a lot of really fabulous stuff, including a parrot who, the afterlife of a woman and her parrot. This is Zhang Yunyang, um, which I highly recommend, and a story about soldiers who were selling women by the sack, right, in Liu's comedic writing. And so there's a lot of really interesting things happening in Chapter 5. But I'm going to ask you to talk about Chapter 6. So this is a chapter that looks at the relationship between, as you put it, violence memory, and historical judgment. Now, because um, this chapter works with a source base that includes miscellanies, it includes fiction, local gazetteers, poetry, and biographies, this is perhaps a good point um, to just pause a little bit and talk a little bit about the sources and how you navigated the sources that went into this book. Um, As I've mentioned, it's a monumental book. Um, The book is almost 600 pages of text, right? It's an amazing achievement. And also, you've brought to bear a really varied kind of source base for uh, for writing these chapters. So could you talk a little bit about that source base? Um, What, for you, was important about integrating this range of materials drama, memoirs, fiction, gazetteers, song lyrics? And were there any particular challenges that you found in working across these different um, textual genre in producing this story? Um, first of all, I want to apologize for the length of the book. I, I no, really, no, 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 no. No, seriously, I, I really don't think we should be writing such long books. It use up so, so much paper. I don't know. Um, but... I, I just, I, you have to take, take my word for it. It's, it's, um, I really very was conscientiously cutting down. I cut hundreds. I mean, I, I cut a lot of footnotes, for example, in order to make this a uh, less monstrous, uh, whatever. But, <laughs> but the, the, the challenge is there's so much. And the, and you know, what I 
manage to read is really a fraction of what there is out there, right? So, yeah. So that's the problem with writing in this, on this period. It's just too much of, too much of everything. Um, I'll just say this. I, I think because of the conventions of our discipline, we, we do tend to write on, um, certain genres, um, to the exclusion of others. So if I'm a scholar of mainstream fiction and drama, then I, I do not do poetry um, or, or vice versa. Um, and a, a lot of, or if I'm a histor if, if I'm a um, um, student of literature, then I, I, I do very careful textual formal analysis and I, I, I don't go too much into the history because, you know, somehow that's not relevant or whatever. But a, a lot of those distinctions are, are really quite artificial and I, I, I do believe we should just, like our instincts, guide us, you know, whatever is interesting, just read them and write about them and make associations between them and see what interesting things come up and follow follow your lead because I, I, I didn't have a plan um, it's more a question of one set of materials mentioning something else leading me to that and it's like playing billet rather than anything systematic um, um, so some of some of this is this accidental question of accidental encounters of one source leading me to another. Um, mm -hmm. But above all, is it, um, my sense of hoping to do justice to the richness of the materials um, and, and, and to recapture, however in, insufficient their attempt is, to recapture the sense of the richness of that textual world that, that was lived by those people and produced by by those people, and which we we can still somehow um, we we can still hope to understand if we take the time to do it. One of the really fascinating sources that comes out of this textual world is one that you look very closely at in chapter six on judgment and nostalgia, and this is an eyewitness account that you translate as an account of ten days in Yangzhou. This is an account of the Yangzhou Massacre in 1645. And this really responses to engagements with narrativizations of this massacre form the heart of what's happening in this last body chapter of the book. So for listeners who may not be familiar with this, um, who may not ever have heard of this massacre, can you maybe use um, sort of this eyewitness account to open up or really any reflections you have on depictions of the Yangzhou Massacre to open up um, what you take to be the most important contributions in this chapter of the book. So Yangzhou Massacre is actually, for, for people in Chinese history, is of course very well known. And in fact, the account of that uh, massacre um, has been translated several times. Uh, most recently by Stephen Owen in his anthology and also by Lynn Struve in um, her source book on the Mingqing conflict. Um, so this was the... Um, this happened when, when, the, when the Qing army um, um, was conquering South China and Yangzhou was the city they, so to speak, 
made an example of Yangzhou resisted the conquest, and and when the um, when it finally succumbed, the the Qing army um, punished the city for seven days. The conventional account said ten days, but the massacre itself lasted seven days. And um, a lot of people were killed. There were raped. There was pillage. We. This is the only account. We. I mean, this is the only. I witnessed the account of it that is in such detail. There are other references to to it. Uh, the other references to this um, are more cursory, and um, and this also was an account that really came to light only in the in the nineteenth century. But most people accept its authentic authenticity. Um, and you know there are many things you can do with it, and the, there are. Um, Books on Yangzhou that, um, like Antonia Finani's book, uh, there, there are historians who made good use of it. I think Toby Meyerfeld might, uh, I think, also refer to it and so on. Um, but for me, I, I, I looked at it, um, you know, following the um, lines of inquiry in other chapters, I look at the gender aspect of that account, uh, spe- specifically on the question of um, the, the harsh judgments of Yangzhou women in that account. Um, the, the narrator said at one point that this, this is why China is facing the disaster is facing now, is because of shameless women like this who consort with the conquerors who are shameless, and so on and so forth. So, um, this idea that shameless women is linked to a um, um, certain type of self-indulgence and how that uh, uh, can be presented as the sins of a city that, and then there's due punishment being visited upon it. That particular idea, um, this kind of crime and punishment idea, um, I, I find quite quite interesting. And this idea of blaming women for what's, what he felt China at that point. So I pursue that argument, and I also pursue the counter-argument of all these writings, writing about Yangzhou chastity martyrs and how how um, that kind of commemorative writings came into circulation and and why are certain women made into chastity martyrs and how did their stories come to be remembered and so on and so forth. Thank you so much. And um, also for our listeners who are particularly interested in the history of the femme fatale. Um, the last part of this chapter looks at um, what you call the elusive femme fatale and the ways in which a femme fatale figure, in particular Chen Yuanyuan, gets rehabilitated um, in the late Qing. So again, um, as with the other chapters, this chapter moves from this perhaps uh, mid-17th century context to look at the ways that the Ming-Qing transition and the narratives of gender and then the other narratives that emerge from it are reappropriated and, and reemerge in a later context in a way that really, I think, plays with this temporality. So, um, Wei Yi, this is an amazing book, as I've mentioned, and there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, right? It's just an extraordinarily rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, I think we talked about it already, but I just want to um, very quickly, um, uh, I, I must mention this in passing, which is, you know, when we talk about Chapter 5 and uh, all these victims and uh, agency and victimhood and so on, um, and we, we 
of course, we can't talk about everything, so we didn't talk about Li Yu. But I, I actually find those stories very interesting. So for readers who who are interested in Li Yu, um, uh, and his particular philosophy of um, pragmatism and uh, rational self preservation, I find his stories about women very interesting. Um, it, I. I, I, I suppose um, it's because in most cases when people talk about chastity and its um, analogy with um, political integrity, people think about martyrdom stories. And Li Yu is the one who turns survival stories of women who, whose chastity is, so to speak, compromised, can be a very good um, analog for certain types, certain strategies of survival in the early teens. So I find that interesting. And about Chen Yunyuan, I just want to say that, um, yeah, so the elusive femme fatale, you know, because the femme fatale is usually the, the figure that is um, supposed to be most transparent in terms of historical explanation. So I thought in a, in a chapter on, on historical judgments and how women are tied to it, she would be a very good linchpin for thinking about it. But ultimately, the, the most interesting question about her is how she cannot be turned into a simple that and that's true from the very beginning when Wu Weiye um, wrote about her but even more interesting is how progressively she she's basically turned into a hero by um, um, by the late Qing and um, definitely some sort of Min Zhuying song in um, in the writings during the Sino-Japanese War and this is just to supplement what you're saying rather than adding any new points yeah. and actually maybe that my final question before um, I ask what's next is just to, since you just mentioned um, or sort of uh, recapped what was happening in the late Qing with the Chen Yunyan figure, why, in your decisions as an author, why was it important to you in terms of the larger work that the book was doing to incorporate this attention to the late Qing and in some cases the Republican era, in some cases even later, in the stories um, that each chapter of the book would tell it was in quite a number of cases. It's the it's really the the it's not my decision. Is is more a question of following the again following the lead of the materials because a lot of these figures come back in in the late Qing and early Republican period, and um, there, there is a good book in Chinese called Qing uh, Qing Mo Ming Chu the Wan Ming Xiangxiang by Qin Yanchun. She talks about this too, and I think Wang Fanshen also wrote about this in um, in his essays. So this is a topic that his historians and literary historians have talked about, and. So in, in, in the way I, I think about this book, the reprise, the late thing reprise is a, a logical consequence um, of, of, uh, of the nature of the materials. How, how both the, uh, the writers themselves come back and the subjects these writers write about also, also um, come back. So it's, it's, to me, it's a measure of how, um, how important it is not to not to be too um, too much bound by the uh, um, precise chronological framework, something that we talked about earlier already. Um, a, a kind of a deeper awareness of how the the symbolic parameters of the subject would cry for this kind of repetition, given a similar traumatic situation, the same set of issues or figures would come up again, perhaps in another guise, of course, but recognizable in, in a lot of cases. 
Fabulous. Thank you so much. Um, and I think it's a perfect note to end on. So now that the book is out and we've concluded our discussion about it, and again, congratulations on this, what's next for you? Um, what project or projects are currently inspiring you, and what are you working on now? Um, is is still at a very nascent stage, but I'm I can't say that I'm writing it yet. I'm thinking about writing it because I'm still uh, writing several chapters for the Oxford Handbook um, for classical Chinese literature, for which I'm one of the co-editors. Um, but the, my own my own project, the one I I think I'll turn to next, is called uh, Lost and Found: Places and Possessions in Seventeenth-Century China. And this grew up out of um, several essays I wrote about gardens, um, collecting, connoisseurship, attitudes towards places and objects in this period, and how we can use uh, such writings to think about the broader transition from late Ming to early Qing. Again, about um, in some ways, these are writings about pleasure, but what happened to the whole idea of pleasure in the wake of uh, political collapse, ideas about self, self-containment, pleasure, making sense of the world, uh, how to trace all these through writings about objects and places and then put them, putting them in the context of um, this political transition. Well, speaking of pleasure, um, it's really been a pleasure to talk with you, Wei. Thank you so much for making the time and congratulations again. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.